In today's podcast, we're going to be talking about man as a poetical animal, and we're going to be looking at some of the thoughts from Carl Truman on Percy Bysshe Shelley. We're going to just call him Shelley for obvious reasons. Some of the comments that we're going to talk about are the Holy Spirit and emotions, making the Bible do more than it's meant to do, and the problems that come with that, and also what Christians can learn from non-Christians who are willing to suffer for their non-Christian beliefs. All this and more on today's Solomon's Corner Book Club. You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. If you are looking for a place to read and grow your intellectual life, welcome. I'm going to do my best to make sure that I don't look down at my computer screen too much. Although right now I feel like a deer in headlights. We've got our lighting correct, but man, you don't realize what these guys are going through until you get it set up yourself. Also, someone had a nice comment about our little Solomon's Corner bumper sticker here. We're working on it, okay? Give us a break. We're a low-budget project here. We're working on getting bigger, but, you know, it's going to take some time. So we should have some stickers soon. Also, they will be in the e-store once we launch that in 2023. So today, I wanted to talk about chapter four, and yes, for those of you who are way ahead on our book club, you are probably further than I am, but are you building out a website? Are you also launching a Rumble channel? Are you also launching a YouTube channel? Are you also growing a podcast? Well, I am doing that, along with my lovely wife, and we are still reading Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, as well as all those other things that we're supposed to be reading. So... Just hold your criticisms and go build your own e-store. Anyway, but in all seriousness, today I wanted to talk about the fact that this book, the subtitle is uh, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. You know, something that's really easy to remember. And uh, the main thing is uh, sexual revolution is a big part of this whole kind of historical process and philosophical thought and we come into we just left Rousseau on our last book club podcast and now we're getting into uh, Shelley and Wordsworth and uh, and he's talking about how these poets are the unacknowledged legislators and this idea is that they have more influence even though they're not in an official political capacity they kind of are the neck that turns the head of the legislative government. So one of the things, though, about this book that I like, even though it's it's pretty heavy academic work, I would say, it feels a lot like Carl Truman wrote this for his uh, academic peers, and it seems like that's the case because he also wrote a, a more uh, accessible version called uh, A Strange New World, I believe is what it's called. Can you check that, Lindsay? Just double check. Um, but anyway, the thing that I want to emphasize on this, on this, this book is that there are a lot of parallels to the expressive individualism that leads to sexual revolution. And what you see in this, uh, expressive individualism and sexual revolution and this idea of the emphasis on the self is you see a lot of parallels within just Christian culture in general of an emphasis on the self. Most notably is the emphasis on emotionalism or emotivism or fideism, you know, this idea that your your emotions are kind of the axiom of your uh, spiritual direction. Uh, in fact, a lot of ways, if you were to ask somebody, well, is that the Holy Spirit or just your emotions or your hormones? Like, they wouldn't really necessarily know what the difference is. And this is because, in general, the Holy Spirit doesn't just speak to, if we were to, you know, this is a little bit more theologically in-depth probably than most of our non-Christian listeners would maybe like to go, but the idea that the Holy Spirit would, you know, just kind of prick your emotions and give you an emotional high, and that's just the general direction you're supposed to go— doesn't really seem to speak to the entire person, because if Christ says that you're supposed to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then it might be the case that the Holy Spirit is going to, in some ways, lead you with all of those faculties as well. So emotions would just be one of them. Uh, But the problem is, is that 
Christian culture and why I think it matters to talk about Christian culture, whether or not you're Christian, is because in America and in the West, Christianity is the dominant religion of most people in the in the country. And so to understand how people think, to understand and be on guard for how you think, it's important for us to understand what people think about this role of the Holy Spirit, how it's leading them. In the same way that if you went to another culture somewhere overseas or whatever, and you found out that they had a different religion on the ground, you'd want to know, well, how do they think? How do they make moral decisions based on this religion and and in this God that they believe in? And so you would want to make sure that you understood that. Same goes for us. We want to understand not just the history that led to the sexual revolution, but we also want to understand the history that led to a church that was seemingly okay with it. And one of the ways that this comes out is just by looking at a couple of quotes here that I have, uh, and I'll have Lindsay bring those up on the screen here. But we're going to start with uh, 142, and this one is, and I'm going to get it open on my book too. You got it right there? Okay. Let me just get onto the same page so I can follow my notes. So Truman is talking about Wordsworth, Wordsworth and uh, Shelley, and, and, you know, Percy Bish Shelley, or Bish Shelley, which is, I just think that's a hilarious name. I mean, you could, you know, Bish, please, you know, it's just, anyway, so, uh, I didn't swear, it's, it's B-Y-S-S-H-E, you can definitely, <laughs> you can definitely imagine Christians, you know what they did with frickin', you know that they would be, if they knew this word existed, they'd be like, oh man, what a Bish, <laughs> but anyway, I digress. So, we look at this uh, page 142, and this improvement achieved, put bluntly, it makes them into better people. This is poetry, and uh, poetry makes it makes people into better people. This improvement is achieved aesthetically and not by rational argumentation. And if you continue looking at page 143, we've got another quote, and it says, Mere reason does not stir the sentiments or emotions as is necessary for true moral transformation. True morality is always built on a foundation of sentimental morality. Now remember, Carl Truman here is actually talking about not what he necessarily thinks, but what Shelley and Wordsworth actually think. So that's the key piece there. So it's important for us to see that when we're looking at an author, obviously, we want to make sure that we don't put words in his mouth as he's describing what someone else's uh, thought actually was. And that's especially important when we realize that, you know, Shelley wasn't exactly a very happy person when it comes to Christianity. And, you know, there's kind of good reason for that with a name like Percy Bysshe Shelley. You know, that, that this is a problem of evil right in your name, you know what I'm saying? So, anyway... One of the things that th- there's three categories that we're going to hit on the Holy Spirit and emotions, making the Bible more do more than it was meant to, and then also non-Christians and, and suffering. So the first one we're going to jump into is, is Holy Spirit and emotions. And you can see this in our contemporary worship and how much there is just this emphasis on, you know, how does a song make people feel, not whether or not it teaches somebody anything. And you know, one of the things that we're going to conclude with at the end is one of my own writings, uh, and I'll read it for you, based on the idea that if you actually have reason as the basis for your art or your poetry or whatever, it can become a very good guidepost for whatever you're writing. That doesn't mean everybody's going to think it's aesthetically pleasing, but at least for you, you know that you're not just letting your art kind of fly off the rails and you don't have any guide rails on what you're trying to actually demarcate and expand out to the to the reader where poetry or art would actually bypass rationality but for us as intellectuals in the christian tradition we want to make sure that we're using our art to yes bypass maybe reason and show somebody beauty that leads to a reasonable faith that would be what we would want to do and so there's nothing wrong with using poetry in the way that wordsworth or shelley actually did because it really matters why you're using that stuff and for what reason you're using that stuff. And for Shelley and Wordsworth, they want to undermine Christianity because it's the moral uh, constraints that are put on the the average person and, and it, it makes them into something that's less human in their view. But if we say, well, maybe those moral constraints actually do make you more human, then we could use poetry and art 
in the opposite direction and try and get them back in. So when it comes to uh, more quotes, which I have, there's this is a big part of the whole thing. We have on page 146, it is noted above, it is only as the heart is awakened by poetry that it is then able to understand rational arguments regarding morality. The ethical and thus the political are built on the foundation of the aesthetic and are both therefore dependent on poetry. And we're going to keep going here and just kind of go through all the final quotes. I think there's one more. On page 148, selfhood that we noted in Rousseau. And again, remember Rousseau was, you know, lover of self kind of stuff. That was when I butchered that French word last last time we had a book club episode and my wife was laughing. Hopefully nobody heard it on the on the mic, but it was pretty bad. Uh, selfhood that we noted in Rousseau, a selfhood rooted in the belief that human authenticity is to be found by freeing oneself from or transcending the alien demands of civilization, by returning to the impulses of nature, and by rooting what it means to be truly human and feeling prior to any consideration of reason. And so when we look at how Christians are responding to rational arguments, you know, a lot of it is, uh, well, I care about the heart, you know, especially when it comes to some of the uh, sexual orientation debates on you know, what is permissible within Christianity and what's not. And, you know, this is this is happening on a regular basis. And and there's a great example of how this is happening. Do we are you actually good to play that video? Okay, we'll hold that hold it for a second. But you know, one of the things that we actually see is this constant pushing on Christians. Well, is that really what your faith means? I mean, that's an outdated outdated kind of view, don't you think? I mean, you should really change this, because don't you care about people? Don't you care about how they feel? And so there's this emphasis on this, and part of that is because there has been this this complicit idolatry of the self in Christianity that ultimately it's very difficult to discern between the self and the Holy Spirit, if any, but if there is any distinction to be made there for a lot of people— and so how they feel is oftentimes this Holy Spirit emotionalism or Holy Spirit pragmatism. Well, because I feel good when I do this, it must be that the Holy Spirit wants me to do this. And this isn't just like liberal Christians either. I think conservative Christians sometimes fall into this as well. Well, you know, like I want this, you know, uh, I want this, you know, job and God wants me to be happy. And so I'm going to do this. And in the meantime, you know, they're not spending time with their kids. You know, their wife is working another job and they both don't have time for their kids. And so like this becomes a, a difficult thing. And that's not to rag on women in the workforce. It's just the reality is, is that if you got two working parents, then they're going to be spending most of their time doing their job and not most of their time do, being parents. So it's just a fact of life. And I didn't learn that in church, I learned that at Florida State from a sociological or a child psych professor. So there you go. Um, which of course you didn't have to go to college to figure out, you know, you can just kind of do basic math. But the point is, is that when we look at what Truman is doing here, we're seeing that there is this trend that goes through history. He's got Rousseau and then he's got these poets. And now he's showing you how these ideas are kind of at the, at the historical uh, approach on how we became so obsessed with the self and the internal expression of the real you. And you'll see Christians even talk about this, and they'll use the same terms. They'll be like, you know, we want to be inclusive, and we want to make sure that we're welcoming and all this kind of stuff. Well, yeah, of course you want to be sure you're welcoming. But, you know, Christianity is for everyone, but not everyone is for Christianity. I mean, you you do have to die to sin. Like, you have to turn away. You have to be willing to repent. You have to be willing to call those things out in order to be a Christian. That doesn't mean that you don't continue to, to struggle or to to repent, but it does mean that we can't endorse sin. That just is part of the part of the deal. But what we have now is this this culture now trying to take these ideas and saying, well, I thought Christianity was all about these kinds of things. And there's a great clip here uh, from the Today Show, I think. We'll just play like 60 seconds of it where this uh, is it the Today Show, or maybe this was, uh, I think this is in uh, Australia, I think. But the point is, is that basically this is an announcer who's going to go after this pastor from a, you know, non-denominational church, it looks like, I think. And uh, and then he, you know, it doesn't matter what denomination he's in because the pastor doesn't do a great job, which again, you know, he was under a lot of pressure. So 
I'm not trying to trust me when I play clips on this on the show. I'm not trying to like humiliate somebody. It's just if you're in the public square, you know, not everybody's going to, you know, hit the mark. OK, and and he didn't do a great job, but hopefully he'll do better next time. You know, we never know. But uh, why don't you play the clip real quick? Andrew Thorburn stepped down after just 30 hours in the job after being asked to choose between his faith and footy. Mr Thorburn is the chair of a church group and Essendon deemed its views to be at odds with the club's values. It's prompted an uncomfortable question for the, for the entire country about religion versus work and whether being forced to choose amounts to discrimination. Joining me now, Guy Mason, he's the senior pastor of the church group in question, City yes. on a Hill. Welcome to you. Good to see you, um, David. You know Andrew Thorburton personally, mm. he's the chair of your board. Do his personal he's views got a great shirt. align with your hardline views of the church on abortion and homosexuality? I know Andrew to be a great man. Uh, he's a man of uh, integrity, uh, generosity, warmth, uh, and he's a man of faith. And I admire that in him. Now, pause it real uh, quick. It pause it real quick. Now, here's the thing about this clip. This pastor is assuming that they have a shared moral value system, but the host knows they don't have a shared value system. And so what's happening is, is that the pastor is actually already a step behind in terms of this discussion because he thinks he is going to be able to kind of have this friendly conversation by using, you know, moral buzzwords that the church has traditionally been able to own, and it's not going to work out very well for him because the host doesn't have any intentions of coming up and being cozy with this pastor because he sees the pastor as morally reprehensible. So, continue. Who he is, uh, he loves his faith, he loves his footy, and uh, I hope we could live in a world where we can express our faith uh, and we can do that and celebrate okay. that. But do his views align with the churches on abortion and homosexuality? Well, the Christian view uh, is one of life and it's one of love. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what we stand for. Uh, that's what we want to proclaim, that Jesus is all about life and yeah. he's all about love. And I'm yeah. sure that Andrew would agree with that. Uh, you'd need to ask him his views, but... No, 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 you, he hasn't given his views. You know him well. He wouldn't yeah. be chairman of your board unless yeah. he shared exactly the same views that the church does. Well, what's at the heart of our church is a passion to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Uh, we seek to shine that light, love people, serve people, build communities, yeah, plant... But, but, but comparing abortion to the Holocaust and homosexuality as sin is not love, it's not inclusion. Mm. There are so many other churches that are tolerant, there we go. are inclusive. Mm. You all read the same book. Yeah. Why, why do you have this hard line mm. and not so loving view? Mm. Well, all right, that's good. We're talking about a quote. With so <laughs> one of the things that you'll, you'll see on this clip, if you watch the whole thing, is that basically there was this, this guy who had come into a what they what they call a footy a footy league, uh, and he apparently expressed some views that weren't in line. Now here's one of the key takeaways, which is a little bit off topic for what we're talking about here. But notice how he said there are other churches that don't see it this way. You guys both have the same book. What's the big deal? How come you read it differently than they do? And notice that the pastor was trying to use these buzzwords in the same way that a lot of these other groups use it. You know, life and love and all that stuff, you know, it's all good. And at the end of the day, the host calls him on his bluff and he's like, no, 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 we own the meanings of those terms now. And I want to know why you're not in line with the mainstream church that is about love as I define love and life as I define life, because, you know, th these terms have changed now, so are you going to get in line? And and here's the, the key takeaway on this, is that most of the time when you talk to Christians in America, they oftentimes assume that they are going to, that, that, that there's going to come a day when the whole church is just underground. And this is not true. Like what they mean by this in time when you talk to them a lot of times is that, you know, their their churches and all all churches, like just religious stuff in general, are just gonna go away. 
And that's not what happens. What happens is, is that the, the state recognizes that there is a lot of value in having a church as a propaganda arm, and they want to keep churches open that are willing to be a mouthpiece because it saves them from having to use more resources to convince people of their agenda. And so you actually end up with two churches, one that is allowed to function publicly and those that are not allowed to function publicly, but society continues. The grocery stores are still there. The churches on the corner are still there. They just have, you know, a rainbow flag out front instead of, you know, no rainbow flag out front. And so this is what we're ultimately seeing. And the thing that Truman is doing in this book is he's showing you how this actually got to be where it is. He starts with Rousseau, gives you the philosophical basis for it, and then he's going to show you how the arts came in and affirmed a lot of what Rousseau did. And while it's poetry that he's using primarily, you could swap this out for the arts in general. But there's, there's one thing I want to point out as well before we continue down this kind of parallel of the uh, internal emotionalism that is at a high, high value for Shelley and for Wordsworth. But it's also that just because you see parallels, like, you know, I, I've talked about Cartesianism on this show a little bit, and I, I have friends who uh, started off as Cartesians and then became Thomists, and I've talked to people who aren't big fans of Thomism or whatever. Just because you end up with seeing parallels of thought, uh, meaning that you can see well, Shelley was really all about, you know, hating the church and stuff, and and uh, Rousseau was all about this internal expression, and then you see a bunch of Christians who are over here being like, we're all about what's on the inside, not what's on the outside. Well, they probably don't know who Shelley is. They probably don't know who Rousseau is. They don't know any of these things, because ultimately, it's not necessarily the case that you have to read Shelley or you have to read Rousseau in order to adopt their ideas. They're just some of the people that we use to help us use language to describe a phenomenon or a belief system that they ultimately codified in their books. And so what, what Truman is doing is he's showing you this historical progression of Rousseau to Shelley to Wordsworth and how this is, at least, it, it's not that this sexual revolution idea of, you know, my identity and my body are out of alignment and in order for me to be my true self, I need to just express what's on the inside and have disregard for what's on the outside. This isn't something that's new. And the animosity towards family, marriage, and the church is not anything new. And so that's one of the things that Truman, if you're reading along with us, actually points out in the book. We're not going to dive into it too much for sake of time, but it's there. What I think is interesting is, again, how much you can swap out this idea of what's inside, what feels right, all this kind of stuff for the same kind of way that people approach their faith. Well, what feels right? What church feels like I should be there? They're not necessarily looking at it from the standpoint of, well, is this church true? They'll say things like, well, I, I went to, I, I don't go to a church unless there's less than 500 people because I want to make sure they have a good youth program. Oh, okay. Well, hopefully that youth program by the way, when they say good, they mean, you know, active, lots of activities, lots of events, not a lot of teaching going on. And if there is any teaching, it's very, very similar to the way that this pastor handled this, you know, interview with the host, you know, and then those kids go into a school and then they're called bigots and stuff. If they even dare to say, well, you know, I'm all about, I'm pro-life and I'm, I'm pro-marriage, but I, I still, you know, care about all this stuff and they have no reasons to defend against it. And they might even get in trouble now. And so you have this, this parallel between this internalism and this Holy Spirit emotions, and it shows that there is this, this big rise in our Christian culture, music, and all this kind of stuff, and it ends up resulting in just garbage music. And, and again, I'm going to read this to you, uh, and I want you to tell me uh, if, if this song is a Christian song or an R&B song, Okay. And uh, I'm just going to read you verse 1 and the chorus, okay? I'm not going to play the music. I'm just going to read it to you. Now, full disclosure, I do like this musical artist, so no shame. But, yeah. Anyway. I'm captivated. I'll say it. I'm on a whole new intrigue. My space invaded, upgraded. I hear you talking to me. It's in the boom of the thunder. It's in the cool of the rain. And I'll say I don't ever want to get away. Tonight is beautiful, girl. I mean, sorry. Tonight is beautiful. It's got my mind on you. 
and everywhere I turn is a reminder, reminder, reminder. I see you in everything all day, and every beat of my heart keeps reminding me. I see you in every little thing all day. No matter where I go, I know your love is finding me. I see you in everything. You're all up in everything. Yes, that's that you heard correctly. You're all up in everything. Okay. Now, verse 2 goes in and says, My soul's awakened. I'm taken by all the beauty you bring. You got it blaring. I'm staring. Love watching you do your thing. There's no mistake in your style. No mistake in your touch. I see the grand. I see the subtle of your love. Okay. Now, here's the chorus. Lord, I see you in everything all day. And every beat of my heart keeps reminding me I see you in every little thing all day. Now, if that chorus is not there, okay, and I'm, I'm going to stop right there. This is by Toby Mac, okay? Now, just reading that, be honest with yourself. Do you think that's about God until you get to that chorus where he says, Lord? And don't you think it's like a little bit like, weird that he's using like i mean you would have very difficult time if this was if this was uh sung by some rap artist or hip-hop artist you know that's not a christian you would definitely not think that this was about god unless they actually said it um i mean there are people out there who think take me to church is a is a christian song it's not um and so the reason why i think you have songs like this is because they have emphasize just what feels right. I'm sure Toby Mac felt like he was writing a good song here, but there is nothing Christian about this song unless you really, really try hard to listen to it and actually get all the way to the end. And again, I love Toby Mac. I grew up DC talk. Give me some Jesus freak, man. It's good stuff. Or time is ticking away, you know? Um, But when it comes to our emphasis on the emotional, it's important to understand that as the as the group that is the majority in the nation, is it any wonder that our culture, the Christian culture of America, when it started to emphasize emotionalism, that the rest of the culture suddenly kind of created their own religion just without God? But at its core, this emphasis on how do you feel? How does God make you feel? Well, then therefore it must be true. Well, that logic is the same logic of, well, how does it make you feel if you wear women's clothes? Or how does it make you feel if you are attracted to this gender versus that gender? Well, it's all based on feeling. And so in order for us to actually get back to some sort of reasoning, we're going to have to swing the pendulum back a little bit towards rationality. And I don't mean rationality in terms of an IQ score. What I mean is rationality in terms of our experience with the world and understanding that there are natures and things that have essential characteristics. Even if we don't like what those essential characteristics are, they exist. And they're what determine laws and the consequences that somebody has when they break those laws, whether man-made or natural. For example, you know, you jump off a cliff, you try to break the law of gravity. It's not, you don't break the law of gravity. It breaks you, right? So, that brings us to the second point, is that what you end up with is this uh, this kind of culture uh, on the flip side that tries to go, well, we're just going to do the Bible. The Bible and the Bible alone. Sola Scriptura. There's no other solas. There's actually five other solas. Just let that sit in for a second. But what I'm trying to emphasize is not so much like, well, what's the historical discussion on solas? But Truman gives us a really important principle here that actually I got from my dad, which is, you know, a vacuum does not want to remain empty. It wants to be filled. And as philosophical creatures, which every man is a philosopher, he just may not be an academic. But what he's doing and when he's reasoning about the world is he's not making assumptions. He's not making presumptions. He's having experiences with reality and he's deriving principles from those experiences. Some of them are correct, some of them are wrong. But they're based on first principles. They're based on this idea of existence, and that existence has certain qualities, and from those qualities we can derive certain rules and regulations and certain laws even. And maybe as we develop more technologies, those laws need to change slightly. But the point is, 
is that if you only take the Bible and you say, I'm just going to do the Bible, the problem is, is that the Bible wasn't meant to be read in a vacuum. It presumes that you are actually a philosophical creature in the way I just described, that you don't need the Bible to define for you what a man is or a woman is because you can know by experience. Now, somebody can deny that. They can deny what a man is or what a woman is by experience, but that's not the same thing as proving an argument. That's just somebody who's denying something. Children do that, and, you know, crazy people do that, but that doesn't make them right. So when we're looking at this from the standpoint of, okay, well, then what's the big deal, Daniel? What's the big deal? Well, because you actually are a philosophical creature, and if you don't actually acknowledge that, especially as a, as a pastor or a priest, then what's going to happen is when you read a passage like, Thou shalt not steal, and you don't come to the text aware of your philosophical presuppositions, well, not presuppositions, but your philosophical system that you use to approach the text, then what's going to happen is you're going to read those philosophies into the text in your definitions of theft. You might start to, because the Bible doesn't define theft, it just tells you not to do it. The Bible doesn't define what a man is, it just says male and female, he created them. Now, there's gender demarcations and things like that, but it doesn't say a man is, you know, has, has, has a penis and testicles and a woman has a vagina and, and uh, you know, they, that, that's, that's what they are. It doesn't say those things. It's not a biological textbook. It doesn't define love, for example, either. It doesn't define any of these kinds of things. It might give you another word, like, you know, Love is patient, love is kind, love is this. But then we can ask the same question of, well, what's patience? What's this? Eventually, you're going to get to stuff that that you have to go to reality for the Bible to make any sense. And so you have to take the revealed word and the natural word, and you have to put them together. You have to wed those things together in order for you to have a comprehensive, what some apologists like to say, and I, I cringe to say it because I just don't like the word, worldview, I would say philosophy. You have to have a comprehensive philosophy or theology. You can pick whichever one. I tend to say, you know, philosophy or theology, but at the end of the day, all theologians are philosophers, but not all philosophers are theologians. What that means is, is that you have to be willing to acknowledge that you have a philosophical system in place. And and there are quotes in here that kind of lead me to that conclusion that kind of brought this to my to my beliefs, or to to my uh, to interpreting Truman this way, it's on page one fifty three, and this quote demonstrates because as after we read it, I'm gonna I'm gonna illuminate it a little bit more. But it says uh, he's referring to this passage uh, by Shelley. Shelley says this. I'll read this part first. It's not on the slide, but I'll read this part so you get the context. Shelley wrote. If happiness be the object of morality, of all human unions and disunions, if the worthiness of every action is to be estimated by the quantity of pleasurable sensation it is calculated to produce, then the connection of the sexes is so long sacred as it contributes to the comfort of the parties and is naturally dissolved when its evils are greater than its benefits. There is nothing immoral in this separation. Now Truman says, and this is the slide on the screen, the passage has a remarkably contemporary logic to it. Shelley believes that the purpose of life is personal happiness. Now, how many Christians agree with that? Which is, he defines as a pleasurable sensation, or, as we might put it, an inner sense of psychological well-being, the ethic of the therapeutic age. Is this, this is very clear that a lot of Christians do believe that in order to be you know, spiritually well, they must be psychologically well or emotionally well. And when they're in an emotionally good state, that's when they're doing okay. Marriage is therefore not to be understood as a lifelong monogamous relationship for the purposes of procreation, mutual companionship, and exclusive sexual union. Rather, it is for the mutual pleasure and satisfaction of the consenting parties, and that is all. Now, there is a book out there that was written by Christians called Intended for Pleasure. And you can go and check this out. This is not for kids. Uh, it's definitely for people who are getting married and wanting to do, you know, get jiggy with it, if you know what I'm saying. And uh, and at the end of the day, it's called Intended for Pleasure. Now, in that quote, if you can bring it back up, Lindsay, in that quote, Lindsay's my Jamie, you know, like we're going to make, we're going to make Jamie the new Lindsay, or we're going to make Lindsay the new Jamie. That's what we're going to do. 
It's ambitious, but but we'll get there. Um, <clears throat> that's Joe Rogan's uh, researcher extraordinaire. Um, if you look at this list, which Truman uh, defined earlier, marriage is therefore not to be understood as a lifelong monogamous relationship for the purposes of procreation, mutual companionship, and exclusive sexual union. Most Christians will agree with one of those, but they won't agree with all of them. And the one that, generally speaking, is the most um, problematic is procreation. The idea that you're supposed to get married because of wanting to have, that, that having children is morally obligated by a married couple is not popular within uh, evangelical or Baptist circles. It is uh, very popular in the Catholic tradition and some of the other more uh, liturgical traditions. But even still, like I was in a catechism and we were talking about uh, abortion and I asked, well, IVF, in vitro fertilization, necessarily leads to abortives, abortives uh, in, in, of you know, zygotes or, or fetuses that have been artificially inseminated, uh, does that count as murder? And the answer was, I don't know. So, I mean, just because you're in a denomination that has this official position doesn't mean that the clergy are necessarily representing those positions accurately. So, you know, we have to, we have to judge an institution based on its, its actual positions, not necessarily its followers. So, at the end of the day, when it comes to this, uh, this quote on procreation, mutual companionship, and sexual union, this ultimately has, like we talked about earlier, went kind of the wayside because Christians said, well, what are you going to say? you saying that somebody who's infertile is immoral? Well, no, they, they're just, they've got a deficiency, you know, but, you know, somebody who's, you know, blind can't, you know, go out and exercise the way that other people would, but it doesn't make them immoral for not going and exercising the way that I would if, you know, if I've got two eyeballs. But it doesn't change the fact that the reason why you're getting married is because you're supposed to participate in these kinds of acts. You're supposed to produce a family, which is precisely why we say when somebody gets married and they can't have kids, that it's a tragedy, that it's a sad thing because they can't actually fulfill their marriage bond. And so uh, when you look at Matt Walsh, for example, he was just on the Joe Rogan show. They actually got into this conversation because Joe Rogan was basically like, well, who are you to say what a marriage is and stuff? And, and Matt Walsh basically says, well, because marriage is the only thing between two individuals, male and female, that can produce a child. And then that child becomes the bond that unites those two individuals. It's a, produ it's a product of their union. And marriage is a union. It symbolizes the union that comes together in marital intercourse. Now, this is controversial amongst Protestants because a lot of Protestants like the contraceptives and all that kind of stuff, but even C.S. Lewis, our beloved C.S. Lewis, talked about how contraceptives in the abolition of man was going to radically change the human condition, and it has. We don't even think of it in, in those terms anymore, and the big reason why is because ultimately Christianity became more about pragmatism and how you feel, which is Cartesianism. Rousseauianism, and now we're looking at the poetical influence that came into that. And so all that being said, to kind of come full circle, is that if you don't decide what philosophical system you're going to adopt, you will end up adopting the philosophical system of your mainstream culture, of whatever culture you're in, and whatever's dominant. And that's going to be the way that you end up interpreting the text. That's going to be the way you interpret what's appropriate in culture. That's going to be what how you interpret the Overton window. And it's also going to be how you judge other Christians. And, you know, Matt Walsh is judged by a lot of godly Christians as too controversial, which is a shame because he's made more progress as an individual with his platform against transgenderism than any of the major churches in the country. They sat by, they let this happen, and now they won't even let his documentary into their churches because they don't want to be affiliated with somebody who's controversial. Well, I think God's going to have some choice words for those people who say, well, you know, he was just a little too controversial. Well, last I checked, you know, when you decide not to get in line with the controversial people that God's using, generally speaking, that doesn't work out so well for you. So, um, in, uh, in, uh, chapter 4, uh, we find this last little tidbit, which is non-Christians suffered for what they believed. 
And, you know, what what we oftentimes see right now in uh, our culture, our Christian culture, which it still is a Christian culture, you can look at the Pew Research, we're still, people are still identifying as Christians, so therefore we can just... We can at least assume that it's safe to still talk in those categories. It's not like, you know, people are like, well, hold on a second. Uh, I'm a Christian, but I've never, ever uh, heard of the Bible. I'm not saying that those people don't exist. Just saying, you know, somebody's going to jump in the comments and they're going to be like, well, actually, you know, my cousin Vinny, he actually, we we had a radical transformation because he actually didn't know there was a holy book, but he had watched a lot of The Chosen. So anyway, you know, somebody's out there, I'm sure. But the point is, is that most people, you know, they know the Bible. They know that that's at least the basis for Christianity. Otherwise, 70 or 80 percent of however many Christians wouldn't say, yeah, I believe in Jesus and, you know, and I, I'm a Christian and stuff. So if that's the basis for our culture, then how is it that so many of us are not willing to suffer for our beliefs, whether that be for Jesus or whether it just be for the truth in general? And so on page 149, we find this passage, which I think is very, very important in light of what is going on, especially in light of COVID and how many professors actually lost their livelihoods, especially ethics professors like Dr. Julie Panessi, who actually stood strong against the COVID mandates and then was terminated from her job of 20 years as an ethics professor. And yet I'll talk to Christians who will say, yeah, you know, I got to get the vax. No, 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 no. You're choosing to get the vaccine. Let's just be very clear. Your company is controlling your will and you're letting them do it. You may not like it. It may suck if you lose your job for it. But let's just be very, very clear. They're holding your salary hostage and you're saying, okay, that's what's happening. And so on this page, you know, especially for academics, especially when you read Milos, where he was literally, you know, exiled from his own country and didn't get the PhD or the doctorates that he wanted. Listen to this. Shelley, who hated Christianity, by the way, on page 149, Shelley's disdain for religion, or more specifically Christianity and all Judaism, is evident from his earliest writings, indeed from the moment when, as an undergraduate, he and his friend Thomas Jefferson Hogg authored the pamphlet The Necessity of Atheism and were expelled from Oxford for their pains. So you have policies that go into place that caused our friends and family members to have their jobs put on the line, to have their whole risks, you know, taking risks, businesses shut down, and Christians, what did you do? We all sat there and we all said, well, you know, you can start your business back. Well, do you really, is it really that big of a deal? It's just a shot yeah, that they lied about and that you guys said we were all crazy for actually talking about. And now we find out that they, they basically pulled 96% limited transmissibility out of thin air. And you said to people, you're just making a big deal out of nothing. It's it's a crazy time. Well, at the end of the day, the Christians who sat there and complained about it but went along with it, you should really take heart on this verse. This guy's not a Christian. He was willing to write a pamphlet on atheism and suffer the consequences. The reason why I bring this up is because one of my friends who shall remain nameless, uh, and I talk regularly about the fact that the left has been willing to suffer. Like, we give them a lot of grief and stuff about, like, and when I say left, I don't necessarily just mean the politics. I just mean this, this kind of cultural revolution that we're seeing unfold in front of us. These people did suffer for their beliefs on a lot of things. They either lost jobs, they went to Christian schools, and I've read these stories where they they get fired because they decided that they wanted to be with a gay partner or they wanted to have, you know, uh, they, they wanted to um, have their, they, they got pregnant before they got married or whatever, whatever these things are. They took their, they, they took a stand on the wrong platform, on the wrong moral principles that we would say are immoral. You know, I wouldn't say that atheism is a, is a good worldview to live by, but Christianity is a worldview to live by, and yet people won't suffer for it. Or just the idea that all truth is God's truth, and yet people won't suffer for the truth in principle. They'll say, well, you know, I gotta gotta make sure that there's this, gotta gotta take care of this thing or that thing or whatever, you know, and it's just it's just this little thing. But at the end of the day, 
Now the same kind of logic that happened in, you know, uh, the COVID shots are the same things that are happening in doctrine. Well, you know, we don't want to have Matt Walsh uh, documentary at our church because, you know, he's just a little too controversial. You know, well, we don't want to, we don't want to say, you know, that we were wrong about COVID because, you know, there were, there's still some people in our church that are still really afraid. You know, well, we don't want to, we don't want to say that we were, you know, wrong about, you know, the George Floyd stuff or any of these things, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, I mean, it, it, we, we were just, we were just watching the news, you know, we were just, we were going off the same script that everybody else was. Okay. Well then why'd you demonize everybody who didn't get on script with you? That's the problem. And so you've got these Christians who are willing to throw Christians under the bus who actually have a stronger conscience than they do, while simultaneously trying to rationalize why they don't have a moral compass, and then claiming that it's because, you know, the big bad government's forcing them to get this thing, or they're forcing them to say this thing, or forcing them, their work is forcing them to put these pronouns in their body. It's like, no, you don't have to do that. They're not forcing you to do it. You're complying. It's like Jordan Peterson says uh, in one of his, his videos. He says, you know, don't follow stupid rules, but be willing to suffer the consequences. You don't have to be a revolutionary. You don't have to be anything crazy. You can take a lesson from Shelley here. They just, they got expelled. Now, I don't know all the details of that, but I think for the case, for the circumstance of this podcast, I think we can def- definitely say, hey, you know what? Like, we can learn from them. We can learn that we have the truth, which means we should be even more emboldened to take a stand, especially for the intellectuals out there. And hopefully, you know, what I've written tonight as an example of, you know, something that you can you can kind of do as an exercise where if you start with reason, you can you can, you know, and, and use that as a basis for your prose or your artistic ability, you might come up with something that at least moves you. I can't guarantee that this is gonna move all of you guys who are listening right now. But this might move you. I know it moved me because it spoke to me, but I was trying to stay within the confines of a certain principle that I had actually derived from a biblical passage. So if you look on the screen right now, and for those who have made it this far, we actually now, not that screen, Lindsay behind me, um, the uh, the painting behind me is uh, a painting that means a lot to me. It's Psalm. Uh, it's based on Psalm 139, 12, and uh, it's a very abstract verse, so I went with an abstract artist and uh, asked him if he would paint this. His name's Mark Lawrence, I have to remember, uh, you know, when you get on camera, your memory starts to go, it's like self-induced Alzheimer's. So one of the thing, one of the passages is Psalm 139, 12, and this passage meant a lot to me, and it was, even the darkness is not too dark for you to see, and the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you, and it's talking about God. And during my seminary days, and during some of the particularly rough days, this, this passage really spoke to me. Now, most people know Psalm 139, 13. Certainly you made my mind and heart, you wove me together in my mother's womb. And that is the passage that most preachers preach on, and, and they rarely talk about Psalm 139, 12. But one of the things that you can do as you're studying, and as you're learning the attributes of God, and as you're being informed by not just natural theology, but also biblical uh, descriptions of God, you try and merge those things together into this cohesive whole, and then art allows you to kind of have a little bit of a flair uh, with what you're trying to do. So this is something that I wrote as I was prepping for this and as I was contemplating what I wanted to talk about to show that while Shelley and others may think that we should uh, that we should throw reason to the side and use emotion as the basis for our compass, I think that it works better if reason is the foundation and then emotion is capstoned on top. And so I took something as a foundational piece and I said, I'm going to try and write something around what this is. And this little piece is about, you know, um, the struggling intellectual and where he can find his hope. What of him, the young man? He always wanders with his books. He is shunned, and his mind is, de- is desired by no one. But the dead, they do not see a boy, but a man, alone in the shadows with all of his best friends and in books or in graves. Most of them are in both. It is for these young intellectuals we exist, those cast out by a false church whose object of worship is not God, but self, the man who is rejected and oftentimes executed. He longs to take on the world of ideas, 
but he is discouraged and afraid. He lacks training and mentorship, but his heart and his mind are wed to truth. They dance in the light and in the dark, and neither man nor angel shall sunder that bond. He knows that his call is lonely, and the road is dark with doubt, and the road paved with blood. The life of an intellectual is dangerous, but the path is lit by both darkness and light. For God is his lamp, and the darkness that envelops. Darkness and light are the same to God. By these two God leads and protects. May we think well, for God is with us, and our journey is not yet done. So hopefully you find that encouraging, and hopefully you can take some of these ideas and say, you know what, I'm going to start with reason before I start doing my prose, before I start doing my poems, before I start doing my painting or whatever. This is part of the intellectual life, is having the reason that it doesn't remain cold and dark, but that we bring it into an artistic expression. Not because we think we're going to be famous one day or because we're going to have a podcast or any of these kinds of things, but because it's a act of intellectual worship. And while we sit here and we say the word intellectual, some people might be thinking, well, what are you trying to say? That you got to have a good math score? Or you got to be a you got to be a Wordsworth, but really, really good, godly guy? No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. The rational aspect we've brought into this quantitative area, like if you're an engineer, well, then you're really, really rational, which in actuality, there's quite a lot of irrational engineers out there. What we're saying is, is that man, as a material, spiritual being, has the ability to form concepts by experiencing the world. He's able to take the material and, and abstract the concept out in a, a spiritual form and be able to wrestle with it and contemplate it and then make new things based on the inspiration that comes from those concepts. This is rationality. That doesn't mean that you have to be a genius. It means that even if you couldn't read, you are an intellectual with rational faculties that are capable of spiritual interaction with the world and producing great works of the mind. That's what that means. Anyone can live the intellectual life if they're willing to work hard and they're willing to, to suffer and take on the burden. That means that it's not for everybody. Just like, you know, being an administrator or being a priest or being a pastor is not for everybody or being a prophet or whatever you want to call it or being an engineer. Take your pick. We can't all do the same job. But if you're called to the intellectual life, then hopefully you will too continue to keep thinking and know that you need to think well because your journey is not yet done. I'm Daniel Roberts. Keep thinking. <laughs>